0: It's Monday, November 1st, and you've got Oz in your ears. Get ready for the best of the best of the month of October. Ooh, it was a scary time. (music) Polling on Obamacare has been pretty consistent. Forty percent like it, forty percent don't like it, and the other twenty percent could care less. That over half the public is unimpressed with this major reform of our healthcare system puzzles me, but what I find most astonishing is the insane links to which the opposition has gone to demonize it. How about those death panels we would face, deciding if there's enough wage earner left in us to pay for the heart transplant? Totally bogus. But that doesn't stop Sister Sarah and her foxy friends from spreading the lie and scaring half of our rest home residents to death. So, in the pursuit of truth and sanity, let's take a look at the key Obamacare reforms that went into effect last week. First, providers won't be able to cancel a policy because of a typo on the application. The insurance companies will have to find other work for that legion of nitpickers who cast honest clients into purgatory for want of spellcheck. Second, insurers can't deny coverage to kids because of pre-existing conditions like hay fever, asthma, or sports injuries. I get it. Why should we make the kids suffer just because there's too much ragweed, polluted air, and AYSO leagues? Third, no more limits on the amount of coverage. So if I develop a chronic condition, I don't have to lose my savings, my self-esteem, and move back in with my parents in Shaker Heights. Fourth. The provider will pay for mammograms and standard immunizations. Pretty radical, huh? Denying Americans their inalienable right to breast cancer, diphtheria, polio, mumps, and measles. Fifth, in case of a medical crisis, I can use the nearest emergency room without penalty. That's a relief. The last time I had a car accident, I had to drive my broken body in my broken car across town to my local ER to cover the charges. There they are. The core of the new regulations that healthcare providers must abide by. Not exactly the Maoist, Stalinist, communist, socialist, totalitarian takeover that the corporate shills, co-opted congressmen, and oversteeped teabaggers are trumpeting. Wait a minute. Are the insurance barons threatened by the prospect of healthy Americans? Do they fear that if, if they can no longer play doctor with our bodies, that we'll recover and take back the treasures they stole from our sick beds? Does that vision make them ill? Not to worry. Their local Obamacare physician is in, and will see them now.
1: Calling Dr. Howard. Dr. Fine. Dr. Howard.
0: From the Folds of the Gray Lady. As many households and small businesses are being turned away by bank loan officers, large corporations are borrowing vast sums of money for next to nothing, simply because they can. Companies like Microsoft are raising billions of dollars by issuing bonds at ultra-low interest rates, but few of them are actually spending the money on new factories, equipment, or jobs. Instead, they are stockpiling the cash until the economy improves. Oh, that's good. Bargain basement money available to super corporations, you know... I remember when I was studying economics in college, uh, companies borrowed money in order to invest in productive facilities and to create new jobs, not to just sit on it. The development presents something of a chicken and egg situation, except there aren't any chickens and eggs in anybody's pot anymore. Corporations keep saving, waiting for the economy to perk up, but the economy is unlikely to perk up if the corporations keep saving. That doesn't sound so good to me. That is a situation I don't know what to do with. This situation underscores the limits of Washington policymakers' power to stimulate the economy. Yeah, they can't go in, for example, and say, hoarded money is unproductive. We are, to, we are going to subject it to a murderous tax rate. The Federal Reserve has held official interest rates near zero for almost two years, which allows corporations to sell bonds with only slightly higher returns, even below 1%. But most companies are not doing what the easy money policy was intended to get them to do, invest and create jobs. That's because they have no conscience. They have no social conscience and they're getting away with it. The Fed's low rates have in fact hurt many Americans, especially retirees, whose incomes from savings have fallen substantially. Big companies like Johnson & Johnson, PepsiCo, and IBM seem to have been among the major beneficiaries. Well, I'm so glad for them because they need it so badly. American corporations have been saving more money since the financial collapse of 2008. But a recent rush of blue-chip bond offerings, including a $4.75 billion deal last month by Microsoft, yeah, one of the richest companies in the world has put even more money in their coffers. Corporations now sit atop a combined $1.6 trillion of cash, a figure equal to slightly more than 6% of their total assets. In the first quarter of this year, it was 6.2% of assets, the highest level since 1964 when it was 6.4. When will they start spending the money? In particular, by hiring. That is part of what has become the great question of this long, jobless recovery. When will corporate America start to feel confident enough to put its cash to work, building factories and putting some of the nation's 14.9 million unemployed to work? Well, that's a real question when you consider that a lot of these corporations are being run by bean counters who don't know a widget from Waziristan, who don't know how to put a spring in a clock, right? All they know how to do is crunch numbers and cheat, The cheap money may be having yet another effect unintended by the policymakers, eager to cut the nation's 9.6% unemployment rate. Excuse me, that is dinged up to 9.7. Several of the corporations borrowing billions on bond markets are using the money to put their own financial house in order rather than to create jobs. Microsoft said it was using some of the money to buy back shares. Other companies are locking in longer-term borrowing, and some of the new borrowing is financing an increase in mergers and acquisitions, which means fewer jobs when you merge. You throw half the people out and you give half the service and make twice the money. Ah, ain't capitalism great? All of this may enrich the corporation's shareholders and cut company costs in the long run, but it does not necessarily lead to more jobs and it does not represent the big investments in growth that could fuel a sharp economy recovery for everyone. Uh huh. Well, do the corporations care? okay? Do they really care? Don't they just wake up in the morning and take a look at what they call the bottom line? Well, I think maybe they ought to take a look. Maybe their bottom line needs some wiping. Now, a while ago, we did a wonderful piece together, David, called More Salt on Your Damp Dog, which I revived (laughs) in in a recent show, but what's that, that fast food only tastes the way it does because of salt. Otherwise, it tastes like Damp dog Damped hair. Damp dog hair. Yeah, right. Okay, well, this is new. This is, <laughs> this is all part of our fast look at fast food. Okay. Looking almost, from the Daily Beast, by the way, mm-hmm. looking almost as fresh as the day it was bought, this McDonald's Happy Meal is, in fact, a staggering six months old. Photographed every day for the past half year by a Manhattan artist, Sally Davies, the kid's meal of fries and a burger is without a hint of mold or decay. No,
2: six six months.
0: Entitled The Happy Meal Project, Mrs. Davies, 54, has charted the seemingly indestructible fast food meals uh, progress as it refuses to yield to the forces of nature. Sitting on a shelf in her apartment, Sally has watched The Happy Meal with increasing shock, and even her dogs have resisted the urge to try and steal a free, tasty snack. Dogs don't even want it. I bought the meal on April 10th of this year and brought it home with the express intention of leaving it out to see how it fared, she said. I chose McDonald's because it was nearest to my house, but the project could have been about any of the other myriad of fast food joints in New York. Maybe not. McDonald's, maybe ma- not. Maybe Maybe McDonald's yeah, yeah, has something yeah. special here. The first thing that struck me on day two of the experiment was that it no longer emitted any smell. So uh-huh. it goes
2: odorless in uh-huh. a day. Well, that's because the odor is all provided with a shot of chemical, right? Just Absolute. before it hits the, hits the table, you know. Which
0: then evaporated yeah. into our house. Yeah, yeah. Expecting the food to begin molding after a few days, Mrs. Davies' surprise turned to shock as the fries and burger still had not shown any sign of decomposition after two weeks. And there are pictures of this. On the Daily Beast, and except for a tiny—I mean, an almost minuscule amount of shivering of the slivering and shivering of the bun and uh, and of the meat—there's no change. Basically, you can't tell one day from another. Day one, day one eighty, same thing. Mm. It was then that I realized, said Miss Davies, that something strange might be going on with this food that I had bought. She said. The fries shriveled slightly, as did the burger patty, but the overall appearance of the food did not change as the weeks turned to months. And now, at six months old, the food is plastic to the touch and has an acrylic sheen to it. The only change that I can see is that it has become hard as a rock. Oh,
2: no, no. Yes,
0: yes, yes. Now imagine oh. imagine what it does in your intestines. Hell, I mean,
2: my burger is undead. <laughs> why hasn't
0: even the bun become speckled with mold? Oh, no. It's odd. When asked if their food was not biodegradable, it appears <laughs> that their food is not biodegradable, David. McDonald's spokeswoman, Dania Proud said, this is nothing more than an outlandish claim and is completely false. Oh, that that's what thanks, they got. Yolanda. We'll be
2: we'll be, we'll be back to you in a minute.
0: But of course, McDonald's yeah. is now looking at and I think this is major. I mean, basically because other people are going to leave their happy meals out to find yep. out just how happy they remain. And if, indeed, they all remain the same, lose their smell after a day, have an acrylic sheen, and become hard as a rock, and becomes untasty even to the hungriest dogs, they got a real problem on their hands
2: here. Yeah, no kidding. Attack of the undead Happy Meals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, just, it's just too much to believe. And, and yet, <clears throat> you think about it, McDonald's is based almost entirely on chemical research.
2: Well, if there's enough salt— for okay. one thing. And sugar, it will preserve it. Right? That's true.
0: Honey preserves the, the mummies. Right.
2: So I'm pretty sure it's salt, salt and, sugar. and sugar content. Because there's it's tons keep it. of
0: salt and sugar in the bun. People don't realize how much sugar yeah, there yeah, is. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, so it's course. salt and sugar. The acrylic sheen. well <laughs> Maybe that's the, something we haven't dealt with. That's yet. the sugar
2: sort of getting that <laughs> acrylic sheen it gets when it doesn't get old. It just gets hard. <laughs> like me. <laughs> oh,
0: Pete. I've been swimming against the current of public opinion in the big river of denial too long. I have to climb out over its failed banks and towel off the illusion that the voting public will wake up from their long midterm nap and keep the relatively sane Democratic Party in control of Congress. Hope may spring eternal, but those springs have been thoroughly evaporated by the extraordinary heat coming from the right. The combination of super PACs run by the likes of Karl Rove, suitcases of cash from billionaire bandits who remain in the shadows thanks to the bad boys on the Supreme Court, and the drumbeat of fear and falsehood emanating from the lipstick liars and the amoral altar boys on Fox is just too much for our fragile democracy to withstand. It's happened before. During the 30s, fascist clerics, hooded racists, armed vigilantes, and kingfish dictators strove for the hearts and minds of America, mired in a decade-long depression. Only World War II and the full employment that came in its wake saved them from that dark crowd. No wartime prosperity can save us now. It is, in fact, our endless war against the terrorists, insurgents, militants, and locals who get in the way that has brought us to the brink of financial and moral bankruptcy. Into this spiritual vacuum have stepped the know-nothings, naysayers, homophobes, xenophobes, ayatollahs, misogynists, and seditionists, sidelined until now by a bubble economy and a corrupt empire. I fear that nasty gang is going to have their way for a while. And perhaps a dose of their second-rate minds and third-rate solutions will sober us up. Perhaps those springs of hope will flow again, even if it takes the hard rain a coming to fill them. What's that all about? Oh, this is a dandy. It's all about my favorite ayatollahs at the Prayboy Mansion on uh, C Street. It's from the Washington Post, wouldn't you know? A group of Ohio ministers has asked the Internal Revenue Service to investigate the organization that sponsors the National Prayer Breakfast because it received money six years ago from an alleged Islamic terrorist organization trying to finance illicit lobbying. Clergy Voice, the activist group that that wrote to the IRS commissioner, complained that the Fellowship Foundation violated its obligation as a tax-exempt organization not to deal with such entities. The foundation, an Arlington-based religious enterprise associated with a house at 133 C Street Southeast, where several members of the House and Senate have rented rooms, acknowledged Wednesday that it had received two $25,000 checks in May and June of 2004 from the Missouri-based Islamic American Relief Agency. Now this, this place on C Street, is the infamous Playboy Mansion where a manly group of Christian congressmen gather to defend the nation against liberals and Satan. And they are so manly that they are found time and time again screwing their secretaries. They're always having interventions where they run into one of these bozos rooms, wake them up and say, you have been screwing your secretary and you've got to stop that right now because it's it's bad as a Christian and it's just bad for the house. And and these guys, I tell you, there's been a lot of stories about them. They've got a lot of youth groups kind of that they play a lot of basketball with young guys. Anyway, the charity was included this charity that they took the 50000 from was included on a Senate Finance Committee list of terrorist financers in January of that year. The foundation said the agency's money was neither retained nor used to finance foreign trips it had organized for lawmakers such as Senators John Ensign and Tom Coburn. I mean, Tom Coburn, he's the poster boy for the far right. They're the ones that, that, that spend taxpayer money to go out and Christianize the world. The group's vetting of donors has been tightened. Glad to hear that. President Richard E. Carver said in an interview Wednesday, hopefully we would not see a repeat of this kind of experience, he added. Hopefully? You mean it might happen again? You might, Osama might walk in wearing like a Zenya suit, hand you $100,000 in bullion and say, just make nice with it, boys. The Islamic American Relief Agency was raided and shuttered by federal agents in October of 2004, but in the months after its inclusion on the Senate committee list, it mounted a quiet lobbying effect to clear its name. Carver initially said the group had checked up on the charity at the time the money came in and found nothing, but then said later in the day that he had received incorrect information and that no such checking had occurred. Oh, Really? Really? No checking. Islamic, what, friendship organization? Sounds good to me. Extensive government wiretaps and data collected in the raid led to multiple federal indictments of the relief agency's officers. They culminated in a guilty plea four months ago by Chief Executive Murabak Hamed, in which he acknowledged sending a $25,000 check to the International Foundation in May of 2004. Carver said that was one of the names of his group. One of the names! Hamed, in his plea, said the purpose was to pay for lobbying by former Congressman Mark D. Siljander, a prominent social conservative who promised to help the agency get off the Senate terrorist financing list. Ooh, I love it! Sylvander, in a July courtroom appearance, pleaded guilty to serving as the charity's unregistered agent in meetings with lawmakers on Capitol Hill and admitted lying to federal officers about his role. Guys at the Preboy Mansion, I mean, there's some scum walking around there. They're taking uh, jihadist money and lying to the government. I wonder what else they're doing behind them closed doors. The Justice Department has said the money involved was stolen from a grant given to the charity by the Agency for International Development in the late 1990s to finance relief work in Mali. <laughs> Siljander knew at the time that the charity was controlled from Sudan, and he suggested that his payments be rooted through foundations according to his plea. So they money laundered Sudanese jihadist money. These people should be shuttered immediately. Carver said that at the time, Siljander, a fundamentalist who has attained prominence for advocating closer relations with Muslims, sure, as long as they retain closer relations with his offshore accounts, was an associate of the Fellowship Foundation, and that it has long been the foundation's practice to process donations and payments for all 200 or so associates and its 300 affiliated ministries. Its annual budget is about $16 million, he said. The money, he says, probably came in at a time when nobody thought there was a reason for Mark to do something wrong. I mean, there is a time for Mark to do something wrong. What what, what Carver said, we uh, never had any reason to expect uh, we would get anything like that. These are just ignoramuses. The Justice Department, in an October 2008 indictment, said the foundation had sent only part of the charity's money to Siljander, but Carver forwarded a statement by the group's accounting saying that 100% of the funds were distributed in Siljander's wages and benefits. They laundered the money. An IRS spokesman said the agency is not permitted to comment on the tax status of nonprofits. Well, when they take away their
2: nonprofit status, maybe
0: they can comment on it.
2: All right, Peter. I, um, you know, I read these stories in the New York Times, and uh, you underline paragraphs and things that people said that you want to remember, and mm-hmm. suddenly they're all—they all just become poems to me. So, uh, this is a poem uh, based on Gates, and I don't mean Bill Gates. I mean Secretary of the Army Gates. Yeah who revealed several interesting things. And here's the poetic version of that. See what you think when I finish. Okay. Okay. A cadre of military leaders cut off politically, culturally, and geographically from the population they're sworn to protect. Recruits come increasingly from the south, the mountain west, and small towns. Army posts moved to just five states, Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, Texas, Washington. Our young military leaders have to one degree or another found themselves dealing with development, governance, agriculture, health, diplomacy, Their peers are reading spreadsheets and making photocopies.
0: Well, I, I love that. That is the that is the new army. The crazy thing is, is that they're they're not at all prepared to do any of that. I mean, you know, these are people from small towns who, who only have one of five states to choose where to train, and then they have to go off and be State Department and Army and International Monetary Fund and psychiatrist,
2: development, governance, agriculture,
0: health, and diplomacy. Oh my God! I mean, what a degree to take from the University when of nowhere.
2: We... <laughs> When we bring our officers home, maybe they can do something useful here because, gosh knows, we could use some governance and agriculture and health and And all those things. And a little diplomacy.
0: The flaming hulks of NATO fuel trucks stretching from the AFPAC border to Islamabad cast a baleful light on the shadow war we have been waging in Pakistan. Understand. The Taliban thugs who torch those tankers have the sympathy of every Pakistanis whose lives are threatened daily by the rain of hellfire missiles. In the last month, the Pentagon and the CIA have more than doubled their predator attacks over Pakistan. Their stated rationale? They need to beef up their boogeyman body count before the White House does their reassessment of the whole AFPAC adventure. It's time we made our reassessment. One. What can we accomplish by putting boots on the ground and drones in the air in Pakistan? The Taliban and a broad range of other hardline Islamist groups are standard fare in a country that was founded as a breakaway Islamic haven. Two. What real help can we expect from the Pakistani army, government, or security services? For decades, they have been using us, lying to us, and supporting the warlords and jihadists who have been killing us. Three. What have our incursions into Pakistan accomplished except to increase the risk of terrorist attacks against our homeland? The Times Square car bomber was provoked by our predator strikes. He is not alone. Four, what level of blood and treasure will we have to pour into Pakistan to make a difference? 100,000 troops and $2 billion a week isn't doing the job in Afghanistan. Five, what's the end game? Will it take the head of bin Laden, a feminist Taliban, an opium-free Afghanistan, and textbook democracies from Baghdad to Baluchistan to satisfy us? Can't we just pack up the American dream and come home? If we answer these questions and choose to act, we have a shot at turning the madness around. If not, we can join the drones at home, follow our leaders, and pay the parking meters. Buddy, can you spare a dime? (laughs) From Talking Points Memo, Chinese Nobel Peace Laureate Liu Xiaobo has tearfully dedicated his award to victims of the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown, activists said, as his wife was held under house arrest on Monday. Don't you just love those Chinese? They don't care about spinning their public relations. All they want is total control of the people. This award is for the Lost Souls of June 4th, the U.S.-based group Human Rights in China quoted Liu Xiaobo as telling his wife, Liu Jia, referring to the bloody June 4th, 1989 crackdown on democracy protests at the vast Beijing Square. I've been there, by the way. It is huge. You can't imagine the scale of Beijing. Everything is at least twice as large as you would expect it. I didn't go into Mao's tomb because I don't visit the resting place of mass murderers. I happened to be in, in Tiananmen Square when it was almost just empty, and there would be occasionally a, a, an army guard standing there, not with a rifle, but a fire extinguisher. I learned later that was to put out people who set themselves on fire in protest. It's a great country. The 54-year-old writer, this is Jiobo, who was jailed for 11 years in December after authoring a bold petition calling for democratic reforms, was awarded the prize by the Oslo-based committee Friday, sparking a furious reaction from Beijing. Leaders around the world, including U.S. President Barack Obama, last year's Nobel Peace Prize winner, lauded the 2010 winner, and called on the Chinese government to release him immediately. Tibet's exiled spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989, also on Monday criticized China's irate response. The Dalai Lama told Kyoto News during a stopover at Tokyo's Narita Airport that the Chinese government does not appreciate different opinions at all. Yeah, Dolly, that's putting it lightly. He also said building an open and transparent society is the only way to save all people of China, but that some hardliners inside the leadership were stuck in an old way of thinking. Via her Twitter account, Liu Xia said she had been placed under house arrest at her Beijing home both before and after traveling to the prison in northeastern China where her husband is being held to inform him of his prize. Brothers, she said, I have returned home. On the 8th of October, they placed me under house arrest. I don't know when I will be able to see anyone, said the Sunday night Twitter. My mobile phone has been broken and I cannot call or receive calls. I saw Giabo and told him on the 9th at the prison that he won the prize. I will let you know more later. Everyone, please help me retweet. Thanks, she said. Yeah, don't retreat on this one. Retweet. Liu Xiaobo's wife was taken to the prison under police guard, his lawyer said at the weekend. At least two dozen police, plainclothes officers, and other security personnel were soon deployed Monday at the compound where Liu Xia lives, interrogating, returning residents, and preventing journalists from entering. It's a police state, buddy. Next time you go out and buy one of them fine Chinese trinkets or some of them fine hijacked TV programs or games or whatever you're buying, just think about Liu Xia and think of Xia Bo out there in prison for 11 years for just calling for human rights. Calls to her mobile phone were met with a recording saying it was out of service. Liu Jiabo is the first Chinese citizen to win the Peace Prize issued by the Oslo-based Nobel Committee, and China immediately lashed out at the award, calling it blasphemy and labeling Liu a criminal. These people are—I just can't stand them. China has summoned the Norwegian ambassador to warn him that it would damage relations and on Monday canceled a scheduled Wednesday meeting between a Norwegian fisheries minister and a Chinese vice minister. (laughs) <laughs> well, let me tell you, China, you know, the fish starts to rot both the head and the tail in your country, and you're going to get caught in the middle. China's censors have mounted an effort to prevent news of the awards circulating on the internet in China, and searchers on the subject remain blocked Monday. And what a great country! Uh, Liu, a former university professor, helped negotiate the safe exit from Tiananmen Square of thousands of student demonstrators before military tanks crushed the six weeks of peaceful protests in the heart of Beijing. He has spent much of the intervening period in jail under house arrest or other restrictions, but has continued to seek the release of those jailed due to the protests. He was last jailed following the publication of Charter 08, a manifesto calling for democracy and human rights that was signed by hundreds of Chinese activists and then thousands more after it was circulated online. Liu dedicated his award to Tiananmen victims to honor their nonviolent spirit in giving their lives for peace, freedom, and democracy. Liu Jia was quoted as saying by Human Rights in China. She said her husband was moved to tears as he discussed the subject, according to the group. During the one-hour meeting, Liu asked his wife to represent him at the Nobel Awards ceremony in December. The Hong Kong-based Information Center for Human Rights and Democracy said in a statement, it was not immediately clear if Chinese authorities would allow her to attend. If they don't allow her to attend, the Nobel ceremony for her husband's peace prize I think we ought to do a full Boycott China Day. Maybe a full Boycott China Month. That doesn't mean we won't be reading Tang Chinese poetry on Oz, because that's like, you know, 1,500 years ago. I'm talking about the oppression right now. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? The Wall Street Journal says that corporate America finished the second quarter of 2010 with near-historic profits. Now there's a piece of economic leisure domain. How do you make Boku bucks in the midst of the Great Depression light? Profits from the S&P 500 are up 38% from last year, the sixth highest quarterly total ever. It would be a good thing if those behemoths had raked in all that scratch by selling a whole lot of widgets or servicing a ton of clients. No way. Since 2008, corporate revenues have shrunk 6% while all those profits were being generated. They did it by magic. Not black magic, but pink magic. Corporate America is making out like the moral bandit it is by firing people right and left and outsourcing every job it can possibly deport. The nation is a wash in pink. The 77,000 job hires in September couldn't compensate for the final exit of the census takers another 10 years before that stimulus returns and the regular growth of the labor force. So, the unemployment upticks to 9.7. Simultaneously, the Fed has hammered the prime rate down to $0.99 store proportions, so the same companies handing out the pinks are borrowing oodles of green for next to nothing. The country's mega-businesses are hoarding $1.6 trillion of cash, while small businesses and households can't borrow a dime. Not a recipe for prosperity in any economic cookbook I've read. It all comes down to the flow of capital, the lifeblood of our national economy. If corporate America continues to squat on its cash instead of investing it in we the people, and if the federal government continues to squander our treasure abroad instead of investing it in we the people, then that lifeblood will not flow and our economy will go into shock. We're all about turning the federal government upside down. Why not the corporations? They're only a legal fiction. The corporate veil can be pierced with the stroke of a pen. Make the board of directors and the major shareholders personally responsible for the careers they terminate and the jobs they smuggle abroad. That just might put us back in the pink.
1: History repeats itself in the patterns in the stone. We close our eyes and fumbling, we listen or we don't. The anchor man is babbling. man's a liar The sports report's a waste of time For the bored and the tired And the past is all we talk about Cause it's all we've ever known
0: As I drove off the ferry onto the mainland recently, I read an election sign that accused the local Democratic congressman of bankrupting the country since 1992. I'm getting whiffs of 1932 and 1984 here. 1932, bankrupting the country since 1992 read, we're in this mess because they stabbed us in the back. Hitler did a great job of convincing an angry and dispirited German people that all their problems lay at the feet of the not-me. It was the Jews and the commies in '32. It's Obama and the liberals today. 1984. The barrage of lies and slander coming out of the right-wing media maw is Orwellian in proportion. Thanks to a reactionary majority on the Supreme Court, secret money from anywhere, inside and outside the country, is pouring into the campaign, doled out by the likes of the Koch brothers and Satan's little helpmate, Karl Rove. Six months ago, when the Tea Party was beginning to steep and the Republican far right was beginning to draw blood from the president, I called up my reserve of American optimism and figured that the people's common sense would come to the defense of our democracy. It didn't. Goebbels was right. I was wrong. In a time of desperate confusion and economic collapse, 30s Germany in the throes of the Great Depression and present-day America in the grip of the double dip, it would take a nation of philosopher kings to accept their share of responsibility for the disaster and devise a reasonable plan for healing the commonwealth. We have been so numbed and weakened by our addiction to trash TV, empty calories, and bogus credit that, as it stands, we are incapable of standing up to the anti-democratic forces co-opting our economy, our ecology, our foreign policy, and our civil liberties. We are being occupied by hostile forces, just as certainly as the 13 colonies were occupied by the British. We need a second American Revolution to free ourselves. Instead of a tea party, a TV party. Unhook our flat screens and let Glenn and Sarah and Sean stumble in the darkness. Turn away from the happy meals of the undead and cook up ourselves a local farm-fresh future. Take a look at that hand of credit cards we've dealt ourselves. How long are we going to stay in the toilet pulling for a flush? We don't have to wait for November 2nd to wake up. Obama is a truly decent man with the patience and humility of our first president. Speak up for him. Speak up for the vision of America he has risked his political future to create and defend. We are the people. We can do it. Well-educated, well-fed, and well-intentioned, we can take this country back from the forces of ignorance and greed. Remember, no Tom Paine, no gain. Well, you remember, David, that just recently we did a big long article on the Medal of Honor game, video game, that that is now taking place in Afghanistan and soon Pakistan and very realistic. By the way, the person that put this abomination together is Steven Spielberg, who probably is like myself in the fact that he's a wussy intellectual. No, I was in the army. He wasn't. So he's flexing his virtual muscle here. Uh, Medal of Honor. Thank you, Stephen. Not. Okay. Video game publisher Electronic Arts, they're the people that put this on, is pulling a controversial feature that would have let players join the Taliban from Medal of Honor, one of the most anticipated releases of the year. Uh Uh-huh. As originally planned, players in virtual battle online could team up in squads one side of insurgents designated as the Taliban with U.S. troops as their target. After rising criticism, including a sales ban in Army and Air Force exchange outlets, EA decided to change the game. Changing the game ain't easy, by the way. They must, they, uh, I gotta tell you, our consultant, John Cumming, uh, the Oz team and consultant was a person who used to take groups of these gamers because he was a head gamer and, and, and put them in weird uh Uh, undisclosed locations and force them to work all day and all night to make these kind of changes. It's a real code shop, code
2: sweatshop. So they're sweating it out. Right. So, So, wait, let's take this back. You mean we're going to play cowboys and Indians, but you can't play the Indians? No, No? you can't. No. Here's what what you're going to be able to do. No, You're (laughs) quite right. But the
0: Taliban, worse than
2: Indians. Worse than Indians. Worse
0: than Indians. No, worse. Because we we can't kill all of them that easily. Only one by one. Go ahead. To be sensitive to families and friends of fallen soldiers that game will be changed so that the op- opposing force or op see they have their own names inside video not taliban will be in the multiplayer mode so you can go you can become a member of the op4 but not the taliban but you watch the taliban's going to hear about this and they're going to start infiltrating the op4 all right all right so this uh, this said producer Greg Goodrich. Medal of Honor is a big thank you letter to the troops, and if this one word costs some troops to be not able to receive that, let's change it, and hopefully people will get
2: that. It's a big thank you letter to the troops? Yeah, I wonder what letter that Uh, is. Does anybody on our side not get killed? In which case, that would be nice. Otherwise, it seems to be a brutal, horrific, miserable attempt to abuse our children with death! You know you're right.
0: There they stood, hoses in hand, the brave firefighters of Obion County, Tennessee, instructed by their boss to let Jean and Paulette Cranick's home burn to the ground, taking the family's dogs and cats with it, all because of a seventy-five-dollar fee that had been overlooked. Jean Cranick pleaded with the firemen, offered up the money, then tried to put out the blaze himself. His reward? A thorough tongue lashing from that beady-eyed marshmallow, Glenn Beck, who excoriated Kranich for trying to sponge off his neighbors. In the background, Glenn's radio show sidekick mocked Kranich's futile attempt to save his home and his pets. If Don Imus deserves to be suspended for his thoughtless racial slurs, then Beck has earned a place in the tunnel recently exited by the Chilean miners to contemplate the darkness of his heart. Beck's twisted response to the tragedy is no surprise. But he has been joined in the blogosphere and on the airwaves by a chorus of self-righteous reactionaries and compassion-free libertarians who display the specter of the chronic smoking ruins as a warning to every citizen who thinks they can get away with sucking off the American dream. Are these troubled times tearing us apart? Are we so spooked by the overnight disappearance of the unlimited everything that will let a neighbor's house burn and his pets fry because of a late fee? Do Glenn Beck and his morally bankrupt minions have their fingers on the true pulse of this nation, a pulse so amped with fear that we are unable to reach out and save our brothers and sisters in distress? I don't think so. It's only a matter of time before we come out of shock, find our center, and put this nation back on its feet. As for Glenn and his ilk, the doggies and kitties whose fiery death they mocked wait for them at the gates of hell. One, two, three. From the Huffington Post, one out of every 34 Americans who earned wages in 2008 earned absolutely nothing, not one cent, in 2009. That's 3% of the workforce. The stunning figure was released earlier this month by the Social Security Administration, but apparently went unreported until it appeared today on Tax.com in a column by Pulitzer Prize-winning tax reporter David K. Johnson. It's not just every 34th earner whose financial situation has been upended by the financial crisis. Average wages, median wages, and Total wages have all declined except at the very top, where they leap dramatically, increasing fivefold. Do I smell a revolution? Johnson writes that while the number of Americans earning more than 50 million fell from 131 in 2008 to 74 in 2009, Those that remained at the top increased their income from an average of 91.2 million in 2008 to almost 519 million. The wealth is astounding, said Johnson. That's nearly $10 million in weekly pay. These 74 people made as much as the 19 million lowest paid people in America, who constitute one in every eight. Workers. 74 people in the country made together as much as one eighth of the entire workforce, 12.5% of the entire workforce. Something is really out of kilt. Johnson sees the depressing figures as a result of government tax policies maintained by politicians with an eye on re election, not good government. And there's a ton of them. It is the latest and in this case, quite dramatic evidence that our economic policies in Washington are undermining the nation as a whole. We have created a tax system that changes continuously as politicians manipulate it to extract campaign donations. We have enabled free trade that is nothing of the sort, but rather tax-subsidized mechanisms that encourage American manufacturers to close their domestic factories, fire workers, and then use cheap labor in China for products they send back to the United States. This has caused enormous downward pressure on wages and not just for factory workers. Combined with government policies that have reduced the share of private sector workers in unions by more than two-thirds, while our competitors in Canada, Europe, and Japan continue to have highly unionized workforces, the net effort has been disastrous for the vast majority of American workers. And of course, less money earned from labor translates into less money to finance the United States of America. It's time for a change. A big change. And it ain't going to come from the top. It's going to come from the middle, and maybe, if we're lucky, from the bottom. I have another caller on the Skype line.
1: Peter, this is Pastor Go to Hell.
0: Well, hello, Pastor. I haven't heard from you for a while.
1: Maybe not, but that doesn't mean I haven't been counting.
0: Well, well, counting what?
1: You think I... I care that you used 56,975,457 letters on yesterday's show, huh? You think I care? I did? Yes, you did. You questioning my statistics? Well, I really have no idea. I don't know. But I do. You think I don't know that 56,975,457 is a product of three consecutive primes? It is? Uh Uh-huh. And I guess you don't know that when I input those primes into my secret Bible decoder ring, it spells Satan rocks. It does? (laughs) Of course. You have to pretend not to know about all the secret messages you're transmitting. I I am? Come on. Come on. You're working for the man same as me. Of course, you're working for the other man. I suppose from your perspective, so am I.
0: Well, thanks for your call, Pastor.
1: Don't you patronize me, Pete. I got the numbers and numbers never lie. I might, but the numbers never do. (laughs) Let's
0: do the math. We're down 11.5 million jobs since 2008 and won't replace them for 20 years. Official unemployment is hovering around 10 percent, and actual unemployment is closer to 18 percent. Municipalities and states perched on bankruptcy are shedding cradle-to-grave jobs. The infrastructure is crumbling, the public school system is in crisis, and foreclosures are at an all-time high. Corporate America has chosen to sit on $1.5 trillion in cash rather than invest in our economy. Just think what $2 billion a week would do to change the math. $2 billion, that's what we're spending every week in Afghanistan. It might be worth the sacrifice if $2 billion a week were bringing democracy with all its bells and whistles to Afghanistan, suppressing its heroin trade, and securing the country from the local jihadists who stone women and behead villagers to satisfy their thirst for power and sexual domination. It isn't buying any of that. Proof positive is the recent admission by our Secretaries of State and Defense that the U.S. is facilitating talks between the Taliban and what's left of Karzai's government. Our nine-year occupation of Afghanistan has been a failure. All that blood and treasure for nothing. When we leave Afghanistan and sneak back home, that country will be a lot worse off than when we charged in post-9-11. Back then, the Taliban were contained in the Kandahar region by Massoud's northern alliance and a relatively stable regime in Kabul. Now those vicious freaks are everywhere. What we'll leave behind is anarchy, the same gift we're leaving behind in Iraq. And we'll come home to anarchy. Where are we going to find jobs for 100,000 shell-shocked GIs? What have we got here for the other 100,000 contract mercenaries to guard? The empire is collapsing, simply because we can't afford it. So, we redo the math. We beat our swords into solar panels and do a hell of a lot more with a hell of a lot less. We learn to live with the reality that other cultures aren't a failed attempt at being us, and we get straight with the fact that nation-building begins at home. When I was flying down to Los Angeles recently, just being on the plane brought back to me how different flight is, the the whole atmosphere of airlines from the time when I started. Like when I would fly to go back to college back in the early 60s, late 50s, they'd pass out little uh, cigarette packages with like three cigarettes in them and Mm. everybody was smoking and I realized... I grew up in an entirely smoked environment, in planes, In I learned to smoke by watching my philosophy teacher and how everybody else got a chance to wait to answer their questions by, by taking a smoke out of their pack. Smoke, <laughs> smoke, smoke, okay.
2: Right, it's true. That was the time.
0: And now, USA Today, times have changed, okay? It says that heavy smoking in midlife, and most of those people on the plane were in their midlife more than doubles your odds of developing Alzheimer's disease. Wow. According to a recent Kaiser Mm. Permanente study, the study is the first to examine the long-term consequences of heavy smoking on Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. Uh, says the principal investigator. From 1994, David, to 2008, researchers evaluated over 21,000 men and women in midlife.
2: So it's a huge cohort. Big sample.
0: And continued following them on average for 23 years. What a great study. You know, Kaiser does come up with this stuff. They do use their money for this. Compared with non smokers, those who had smoked two packs of cigarettes a day, which back in the smoking days was very common, right, increased their risk of developing Alzheimer's by more than 157% and had 172% higher risk of developing vascular dementia, the second most common form of dementia after Alzheimer's. Wow. The research is, is public, is just been published in the Archives of Internal Medicines. Totally legit, okay? Though the study was observational, the authors have theories about what might be going on. People who smoke have increased inflammation, and we know that inflammation also plays a role in Alzheimer's. Dementia experts say the Kaiser research is strong. Sounds strong, right?
2: Hmm. So, Yeah, absolutely. Well, if the sample is big and the time period is, is really long, and the statistic is enormously high.
0: Uh, You know, and it says this study is particularly good because it separates out vascular dementia uh, and Alzheimer's, it says, uh, who notes that some early studies on smoking and dementia suggested a protective effect for some reason, but it's not. There's no protection from smoking. It's the other way around. So Mm. that's another good thing. The other novel aspect is that they got a large enough sample to look at different ethnic groups. And it shows that smoking's effect on dementia does not differ based on race. There was thought that it did. Uh, a key question for worried smokers: If I quit, will I lower my risk for dementia? The answer is unknown, but Whitmer says researchers are planning a follow-up study to find out. The bottom line: If there's somebody out there who hasn't heard smoking's bad for you, <laughs> they must live in a cave somewhere. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's probably Osama bin Laden. He probably smokes. He probably he lives probably in a does. cave and he smokes. Well, it's and it's a sealed environment too. I mean,
1: <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> I can't. Re- who are you? I can't remember your name.
2: From the
0: A's to the Z's. A's for Alaska, where wing nuts abound. B is for Bilderberg, deep underground. C is for coal, dirty fuel, dirty grave. D is the Dems with a Congress to save. E's the electorate, angry and scared. F is the fascists, well-paid and prepared. G is the GMO food on the shelf. H is the harm it can do to yourself. I is for Islam. But which one, by God? Is J for their justice or endless jihad? K is for Karzai and his dope-dealing bro. L is for how long he will last when we go. M is Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's fist, which he shakes when he says that his nukes don't exist. O is for Obama. I'm so glad he's there. P is the people who think that he's Saladin's heir. Q is Al-Qaeda, Osama's vile thugs. R is Rydia that pays for their weapons and rugs. S is the stimulus, vision and plan. T is the tea party, duped to a man. U is unmanned drones flown from far, far away. V is the innocent victims they slay. W is the prick who put us in this hole. X is the factor we'll never control. Y is the question, must our country begin this ground-zero-sum game that no one can win? If we rise above gender, wealth, power, and age, put an end to this flag-waving, book-burning rage, just tend the garden, play our parts, take our ease. We can rebuild the future from the A's to the Z's. Well, Dave, uh, you've got us into a new guy now. You got us into a new, probably Tang period, at least early Tang period poet. And what's cool about Dao Cheng, is that
2: he likes to drink wine, and he likes to talk about it. He sure does. And you know, his lifetime, we're talking about 400 here, 400 A.D. He was writing these lovely Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, 1,700 years ago, and the man knew how to do his stuff. He sure did. Here's one. A green pine grows in eastern garden. Dense underbrush obscures its beauty. When a nipping frost ruins all other plants, its lofty branches emerge majestically. Unnoticed among trees, standing alone, it becomes a wonder. I take a pot of wine to hang on the wintry bough, then look afar over and over again. Life alternates between dreams and illusions. Why should... I tie myself to this worldly bondage. Good question, to which I have no
0: real answer. (laughs) But at least we're tied. We're tied to Radio Free Oz, and uh, it's it's a it's a mild kind of bondage. Mild kind of bondage. Yeah, kind of a friendly. Uh, I'm getting
1: excited. Oh, the bondage of Radio right. Free
0: Oz. Don't forget to go up to RadioFreeOz.com. Dig Bergman's blog. Osman's blog. Go up to the ears page and find out what you can get if you subscribe and you become an insider. See you tomorrow.